Welcome back to STEM Fatal, your Women in Science History podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your other co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. Uh, and I guess I was causing problems because uh, this time I'm the cause of the delay in our episode release. Whoever's in charge of the story is, well, not usually it's just me. But <laughs> n- now we're both problematic. Yeah, you know, sometimes you just, uh, it's like sometimes I think I can find information and then it just never comes to be. Or it's like, and it's hard to get into even writing it when you don't have enough info. And you're just like, there's got to be more, but, and there there is Some- in this case, but, uh. Yeah, you know, the motivation uh, sometimes isn't there when it's difficult to research, you know? Motivation can be hard. Yeah. Just in life. But we're back. We're back at (laughs) you. Coming (laughs) at you. And we're motivated to tell you this story. Yeah. I'm motivated to hear it. I actually remembered to do a question this week. Nice. On it. Okay, and my question for this week is, Emlyn. <laughs> yes. Uh, what happened? Okay, <laughs> it's just gonna. <laughs> I originally this was even worse than it actually is because I was just gonna ask you what happened in 2020 that has implications for today, and then I was like, oh, a hundred <laughs> things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's a that's a. You know, a very open-ended question I could <laughs> okay, but I'm write hoping a five-paragraph essay. I'm hoping I made it specific enough that maybe you can guess what I'm talking about. Okay. So, okay. Emlyn, what happened in yes. 2020 that recently led to some changes in the number of house seats each state receives? <laughs> Redistricting? Hmm. Sort of. Oh, the 2020 census. Yeah, yep. There you go. The 2020 census. Um, I'm intrigued where this is going. Yeah, so, well, today I'm going to tell you all about a woman, Edna Lee Paisano, who was a sociologist and statistician who improved the U.S. census surveys so that they more accurately counted minority populations. I love that. Okay. Yeah, so... We haven't done a a statistician since um, Florence Nightingale. Right. Okay. (laughs) So, Edna Lee Paisano was born in Lewiston, Idaho, on the Nez Perce Hmm. Reservation, um, her father was Ferris Paisano Jr. and her mother was Francis Arthur Paisano. And Edna's birth date was January 1st, 1948. 
Um, and her mother was from the same tribe, the Nez Perce, and had grown up on the reservation in Idaho. And her father was from the Laguna Pueblo tribe in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, her father worked for a lumber company and her mother worked as a school teacher. And the two of them also raised cattle. And Edna remembers walking the cattle along grasslands and hills in Idaho, which sounds very picturesque and lovely. And her grandmother would often care for her when she wasn't in school. Um, and she worked making, making and selling cowhide moccasins and beaded coin purses. And her grandfather was a road worker who helped to build parts of the Lewis and Clark Highway. And oh, interesting. Yeah. She spent a lot of time with her, with both of her grandparents who would often take her camping and tell her a lot of stories about um, her family and the tribe and just about life. So those are just some fun, nice childhood memories that, you know, <laughs> she had growing up. Um, she had a love for learning and excelled in math from an early age. And so when she graduated from high school in 1966 as the salutatorian, she started college at Boise State University, um, and she started taking math courses mostly, like thinking she might major in math. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, however, she couldn't figure out exactly how to use a math degree to help the Native American community, which was a major kind of life goal of hers, was to have a career where she could give back to her childhood community, the broader Native community. And so when she transferred to the University of Washington, which is in Washington State, for anyone <laughs> from out of state that's like... You know, there's a lot of different Washington. There's Wash U and St. Louis. There's Washington, D.C. Um, it can get confusing. When she transferred to the University of Washington, she decided to start studying sociology, thinking that it would be more useful in finding a career that gave back to her community. Um, but she did continue to take many math courses throughout her college career, all of which would come in handy later. Let's see. And it was during her time in college that she developed rheumatoid arthritis, which is uh, an autoimmune disease where, well, for her, she just literally woke up one day and was in so much pain she couldn't walk or, like, get out of bed or anything. Um, It's just, you know, one of those diseases that's very hard to treat. You know, I think you pretty much just have to do a lot of light exercise and maybe some really like minor pain medications. I'm not totally sure, but it can really interfere with everyday life for sure. I did not realize that rheumatoid arthritis was an immune, like autoimmune disease. Is it all arthritis kind of or no? Is it? I mean, we it's are just like an inflammation. I don't know any- I kind of just thought all arthritis because it's just like inflammation due to like, but rheumatoid arthritis, I'm definitely sure because 
it's not like a use disorder where like you use something a lot. Uh huh. And that's why it's painful. It's just like your body just like is, I don't know, just swells up and becomes inflamed and it starts like kind of attacking your joints or something like that. Another thing to be afraid of. I mean, you're, I don't think you have it. I mean, maybe it'll develop, but I, I don't think you have to be afraid of it and unless you have it. You know what I mean? Well, I mean... Like, you would know if if you had it. Though, I think some people do develop it later in life. you said she just life. woke up one day. Yeah, I mean... How old was she when she... She was in her 20s. I've so- You're... This I is, mean... This has gotten derailed, but, you know. I, it's... Do autoimmune diseases run in your family? <laughs> That's something to no, consider. but... Because um, it's... It's usually, like, uh, it's often autoimmune diseases are triggered by a sickness. Like, if you contract a virus, like a really bad flu or something like that, then it does Mm -hmm. seem like a sudden onset. But it's, like, you know, something weird like that, like a virus, can kind of set off your immune system to then become this sort of overactive thing that starts attacking its own cells. That's gotcha. what that's kind of a running theory on how autoimmune diseases are like how they seem to just come out of nowhere. Um, so just never get sick again, I guess. Keep wearing <laughs> a mask everywhere. I'm glad I got my vaccine. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, we can continue on. We don't have to go down. <laughs> I'm just like farther. I'm actually just surprised that you that you didn't know arthritis. You there there was some arthritis that are like an autoimmune thing. I thought it was just old joint people. No, no. Okay, well, you'll you'll. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think this can... is what I was going to learn today. <laughs> well, you, it's not the only thing you're going to learn, so. And I'm excited. Tell me yeah. something um, that's not a potential on- <laughs> uh, quick onset disease I could get. <laughs> okay, so well, here's the here's the good and you know for the most part she was able to like manage her disease for most of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, though, despite. I think it might have been hard to treat at first because I think it can even take some time to diagnose. And she did have to get both of her hips replaced in her 20s, Ah. I believe. Yeah, it's like really bad. Like your immune system attacks your joints. Like really, it's really awful. I Um, hate this. But (laughs) don't worry. It's almost like very little of the whole story after this. So, despite being in the hospital most of her junior year in college, she was able to complete her courses, and she graduated from the University of Washington with her bachelor's degree in sociology in 1971. Do you know why she switched from Boise State to University of Washington? Was it because she changed majors and that was, like, better, or did her family move, or...? No, her family didn't move, so... 
I read that she was at Boise State University and Boise Junior College. So I feel like she was just taking courses. Um, mm, maybe okay. like that not, yeah, totally formally and then decided to like transfer to a four year school permanent, you know, to complete a degree. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after graduating with her bachelor's, she stayed at the University of Washington for two more years to complete a master's degree in social work. And I couldn't find exactly what her work was for her master's. Like, I couldn't find her thesis or anything like that. But I do know that during this time, she helped establish a Native American cultural center at Seattle's Fort Lawton. And this cultural center hmm. still exists today. It's called the Daybreak Star Cultural Center. And I don't know her exact role in the establishment of the cultural c- center, but um, I did like learn about its founding, which was really interesting. And, and she was probably at least there and somewhat a part of it. So... Um, essentially in 1970, which was probably the same year she moved to the University of Washington or to Seattle area, um, a group of Native American activists actually occupied this military fort, Fort Lawton, after it shut down as a military base. And they like went to the base and started like invading's not really the right word, but occupying it like protesting camping out there essentially with the goal of turning it into a native american cultural center and um, ultimately after some negotiation with the city they were successful and this center became imperative for providing social aid and community resources to the growing urban native american population in seattle Um, helping a lot of people who had left their reservations to find jobs or schooling or housing. And so I don't know if if Edna was part of the occupation itself, but she was in Washington at that time. And it seems like she likely helped build the early social programs at the center, which is just kind of a cool part of her history. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. Okay. So after finishing at the University of Washington, Edna moved to Washington, D.C. <laughs> so this is, it's like two different she places in case there's some international listeners that are just like, what? Um, and she began working for the federal government. And her first job was with the office of Head Start, which, um, which helps, I think, like it's like an early child care system thing like helping little pre like preschoolers i think kind of get a head start and be ready for school and she also helped produce films and slideshows to teach native american leaders how to be good managers which i found like so random but i don't know i guess it's the 70s and that's like something people did i don't know (laughs) yeah so this like is an instructional inc- video. Yeah. Good I guess. manager. Yeah. Um, so this included a lot of travel to different reservations around the country. However, her arthritis made the travel kind of difficult at the time. Um, and so she sought out a more office based job than field base. 
and she was soon hired to work for the U.S. Census Bureau. <laughs> Back to our, our initial question. Um, and her role there was the uh, – she was hired to be the principal statistician for the Racial Statistics Population Division with – Basically, and she was basically given the task as the principal statistician for this division to improve the census for the Native American community. Um, and she was also the first Native American that was ever hired at the U.S. Census Bureau. Gotcha. Wow. So, but like, so did she have, I mean, she had a math background and then she had a sociology background. Yeah. Did she I have think, a statistics background or like is I think she must have been doing work already kind of like uh sort of demography I guess which is okay. using statistics to analyze different aspects of population, right? Like who makes up a population essentially to describe a population. Mm. Um, I think she must have had a background in that to be hired as the principal statistician of this division at the Census Bureau, right? Yeah. 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 So it's, I don't know exactly. Or she's what, a fast learner. Yeah, or something. Maybe it was just her coursework in general was impressive to them and that that was enough at that time to be a principal statistician. Like, you didn't have to be a, like, nowadays to be a statistician, you kind of also have to be a computer programmer. Like, they go kind of hand in hand a lot of the time. Not always, yeah. but it's kind of part of a st statistician's job now to do all this, like, really, really complex modeling that often involves programming, right? But there yeah. weren't really even computers then. So, you know, things were, like, more... Pen not that it was like easier, but you might not need as many like as much experience, I guess, to learn. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, I, well, and stats was definitely not like was a much less developed field. Yeah, I think so. At that time. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So, here I'm going to explain a little bit about the U.S. Census, uh, just in case any okay. of our listeners are international, but also to really hit home why her work was so important. So, at its core, the census is defined in the Constitution, actually, which I didn't know, um, as like a national headcount that occurs every 10 years. Which seems simple, but uh, who has historically been included in the census and what that headcount is used to decide has changed a lot since the very first census in 1790. So, for example, Native Americans were not included in the census until 1850. And even then, Native Americans on reservations were not included because I think they were exempt from paying taxes. So they didn't include them in the census. 
Mm -hmm. And one major implication of the census, as many know, is that it determines how many seats each state will receive in the U.S. House of Representatives based on the population size of that state and based on population growth and, and other things like that. Um, and over the years, the census has also taken on a lot of other responsibilities and roles, like, for instance, letting the government know how many men are eligible for the military draft, um, how much funding a state should receive from federal programs like social welfare, where district lines are drawn within states, and even down to city-level decisions like which schools and hospitals should receive more or less funding. So mm-hmm. in 2010, for example, federal and state governments used the census to determine how to allocate almost $700 billion across communities. So it goes into a lot of decision making and a lot of money is based on how many people are living in a place and how old they are and all these statistics essentially And I shall also add that the Census Bureau in general does more than just the one count every 10 years. They do a lot of different surveys, like analyses on population growth, um, surveys of, of businesses, and, you know, just all of these things impact how federal and state money is allocated across communities. Okay, so that's just a little bit of background. As the U.S. grew from just under 4 million people in the first census to today with almost 400 million people in the country collecting data on everyone in the United States became more complicated, obviously, and required more advanced statistics, along with large community efforts to expand census taking in undercounted populations. So this is where... Edna really was kind of a prime person to take on this role of like figuring out how to count undercounted populations Um, because she had this social sociology background and this math statistics background. So she could combine her two skills to like really improve the census. No, that is like a remarkable, like, um, her skill set, I feel like not many people would have had that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. It's a good thing that she t- did take math classes, even though she was getting this other degree, I think. Okay, so when Edna started at the U.S. Census Bureau in 1976, she determined that the Native American population was not being accurately represented in the census. So... Not only were Native Americans being undercounted, but she did not think that the current surveys or questionnaires included with the census would accurately collect data on Native populations. So in an effort to explain how complicated it can be to count for the census, which like, it seems like it should just be easy, right? You're just counting people. Um, yeah, I re- just- I did some research on why Native American c- communities are so often undercounted. And so here are some that I found. Um, and many of these are still like true today. So first mm-hmm. is that um, 
quite a few Native populations and households are remote, even within the U.S., where we have, like, it seems like you should be able to find everyone these days. That's not true for some folks living on these reservations. Um, Like, some families live on dirt roads without a typical city address, so... How can anyone find you, much less how would you fill out your address on a form when you don't have, say, a street name that you live on, you know, or a zip code or something like that. So not only are they difficult to find, but if those people received a census form, it's not always clear how to fill them out. Um, Not all Native Americans speak English in the census, especially in the late 1900s was not offered in many alternate languages. And even today, I think the Bureau itself only offers assistance with Navajo and maybe one or two Mm -hmm. other native languages. So this means that community members that can speak English and their native language are kind of necessary to assist others in filling out their censuses. Um. Extended family households are common on some reservations, and so counting how many individuals are in a household, you could actually undercount or overcount, but either way, it might not be accurate. Um, Many folks temporarily move off of reservations for work, so they might not be counted as living on a reservation, if depending on when somebody fills out the census. There's a general mistrust. These are all reasons. <laughs> I'm just like going through a list. Um, there's a general mistrust of the American government in many Native American communities, which is like, you know, rightfully yeah. so. So giving <laughs> yeah. over information to a stranger from the Census Bureau without understanding how that information will be used is like can seem kind of fishy, right? If someone like showed yeah. up your, at your door and is like, how many people live here? You're like, what? Why do you want to know? Um, so again, the census has to really rely on community efforts to expand knowledge of, of what it is and why it's good to fill it out. There's, there's a lot of reasons, like even just se- seemingly small things like the U.S. will classify some reservations with different names on the federal register than the name actually used by people living on the reservation. So someone might mm. fill it out with the name they use, but it would be counted differently than how someone else might fill it out, even though they live on the same reservation. Gotcha. Okay. So these are all, and then there's even more, I'm sure, reasons <laughs> why, and like, Despite all of these complications, reservations receive federal funding for things like housing and health services um, based on accurate population counts or like these inaccurate population counts. Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, if the census only counts 70% of people that are actually living on the reservation, they're only going to get money for 70% of their population. So it really is crucial to like get a correct count, (laughs) which is like 
it seems like so easy, but if you break down kind of all the reasons why it's hard to get an accurate count, it starts to become like, actually, I have no idea how they get an accurate count. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So Edna saw, saw these difficulties when she was first hired and actually, um, she was probably imperative in discovering a lot of the difficulties I just listed. Cause those are all from yeah. like an article last year that I found. Um, but let's look at how the census changed while she was working there. And so I say that because for the most part, I don't know exactly her role in changing the census. I know a couple specific things, but a lot of her work is cited as the United States Bureau of the Census report, you know, which is probably done by a a team of people. Um, But I know that she was the principal statistician for this race, racial population division. um, And that a lot of this work was led by her from like 1976 to 2000, basically. Whoa, that's a long time. Yeah. Okay. So in 1970, before she started with the Bureau, um, so yeah, the census is every 10 years. So the census in 1970 was categorized based in rural areas based on observation by census takers. So this means that there were people going to rural areas and just counting how many people were there and marking down what the race was of those people. Um, as opposed to like last year, I filled out my own census, you know what I mean? And I said what my Mm -hmm. race is, like I self identified my race. Right. Um, so, Many Native Americans were not actually filling out the census. Somebody else was counting them. And in that year, the census counted 830,000 Native Americans. Um, Hmm. For the 1980 census, which was a few years after Edna joined, they changed it so that all respondents were allowed to self-identify their race. And additionally, Edna had reworded questions on race and identification, um, and she had edited some of the supplemental surveys, which I'll get to in, in just a second. And in 1980, the census counted almost uh, 1.4 million Native Americans, which is a 72% increase from 1970. <laughs> So they were like, yeah, they were like, oh, it's probably not because a bunch of Native Americans just moved here, (laughs) right? Like, or had a million babies or whatever. Um, And so, yeah, they think they're, you know, while some of this uptick was also due to increased community outreach as a result of Edna saying we need to visit reservations and tell them about the importance of the census. Um, A lot of the uptick was, was due to the ability of folks to self-identify to see what their category on the survey was and say like, yes, that's me and not have someone else decide what their race is, you know, not just look at you and be like, Hmm, let me guess. (laughs) Right. 
It's really weird, right? Yeah. Um, well, okay. you said like that they changed in the 80s for everybody to be yeah. able to self-report. Does that mean that like a lot of people could self-report but not at the reservations? Well, Like it's, white people got to yeah, exactly. self-report, but okay, cool, cool. It's like they basically – it seemed to me in 1970 because they only had these – census takers they're called enumerators so these were people who traveled to rural areas and instead of giving everyone in that area a survey to fill out they just basically filled it out for everybody gotcha which it seems like you know you would at least think they'd be like hey what race do you consider yourself you know, or were they just like looking at them and deciding? I don't know, but it's, it's not great. Yeah, it's not great. So, um, so let's see. In addition, and the, yeah, so there's quite a few reasons too for the uptick. So prior to the 1980 census, the bureau had also worked really hard to obtain a list of all tribes as listed on the federal register. So that people could uh, correctly write in their tribe name that's on the federal register so that they could be categorized, you know, in this more official way. Um, And they tried very hard to update their maps to be more accurate so that they could find more people living in these in the more rural areas and include them in the census. Um. And the 1980 census, as a result of Edna's influence, was the first to have a supplemental survey tailored specifically to Native American populations. And I think that this was written directly by Edna um, because it's cited in multiple articles that she did this. And one example of how this, of what this kind of information this survey included um, is that And it was tailored to Native American communities, like it included specific occupations like rug weaving and sheep herding that, you know, she just knew was more common from her time visiting and working and living on reservations. Um, And I'm sure it included a lot of other things. I couldn't find the survey itself. Okay. That's very cool, though. Yeah, so basically, like, getting a really accurate portrayal of the Native American community and even differences across reservations, too, which I don't think they really, maybe, like, two censuses prior, they started even categorizing populations sizes based on reservation instead of just, like, all Native Americans. Um, okay. So the Census Bureau continually works to improve their maps, and um, with new GPS technology, it became easier to map and identify some of the more rural homes and, like, go back to the same homes every year. Um, Between 1980 and 1990, the Census Bureau formed an American Indian and Alaska Native Task Force, which I'm guessing Edna led the formation of this task force um which also led to the formation of the tribal liaison program 
where liaisons were allowed to review map boundaries for the reservations to ensure that they were accurate. And they worked to basically get the word out about the census within their reservation to make sure that people were filling it out and understanding like there's funding connected to every person who fills this out, basically. Okay. And throughout the 80s, the census also held regional meetings to review the census questionnaires. And they would hold these meetings with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Housing Development Departments, tribal governments, and Native community groups. And so these meetings helped them improve survey techniques and maps, help tribes understand the importance of the census, and, uh, and so on. So really, like Edna and the rest of the census was was basically the Census Bureau were doing a lot more to connect to those communities and make sure that those communities were like a part of form formulating the surveys for the next census. If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. It does. No. That's. I mean, just putting in the effort to make people feel like they're part of the process. And right. have them understand the importance of the process. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so the 1990 census saw another increase in the Native American population, 38% from 1980, to a total of about 2 million in the U- people in the United States that identified as Native American. And this was probably... Um, largely due to this extensive community outreach. In 1993, Edna was the lead author of, of a report titled We the First Americans, which summarized the 1990 census data on Native American populations, like reporting sizes for all of the different um, tribes, describing the age structure of Native populations, which at that time was very young and growing, describing occupations, education, and just a lot of other details that I don't think had ever been been really, like data that had never been analyzed regarding Native American populations. And okay. mm-hmm. um, she also compiled similar reports for the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. So she wasn't just working... Um, with Native Americans. She was also leading the charge and kind of figuring out how to include more minority groups in the census and make sure everybody was being counted. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure there's, you know, there's probably very similar reasons why other marginalized communities don't complete the census, but also probably unique, distinct reasons. Right. That you have exactly. to like, specify for each type of, like each group yeah. of people. Yeah, for, definitely. Um, okay. And during this time, and I couldn't find more on this exactly, which is too bad because it's ab- all about her math abilities, but everything kept saying that Edna also worked to improve enumeration formulas at the U.S. Census. Oh. (laughs) And I was like, I looked up enumeration formulas, and they look really complicated. Like, they include imaginary numbers and everything. Oh, no. 
But I assume that they are in a a theoretical sense, just formulas that are used to estimate actual population size and like other demographics based on a sample, like something like that. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, like, obviously, you're not counting, you're not able to count every single person. It's just not going to happen. So. Right. And like, one of the things that I didn't really understand, I looked up like, how do they even know they're undercounting? Right? Because it seems weird to be like, oh, we undercounted. And they have estimates of like, 10% undercount 4%. I'm like, how would you even know that if you undercounted? Right? <laughs> but yeah. Um, but it it tur- when I looked it up, it made more sense. Like they they use a lot of surveys to de- like throughout the years, like not just the ten year survey. They do more than that. They use surveys from like nineteen ninety nine and be like, oh, this many people in this area filled out this survey, and when we did the census. There's fewer people in that area, you know, like that filled out the census, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that part of her job, too, was looking at all this other survey data and comparing it to the census data and looking at growth and is the census accurately representing this population? And if not, how much of the population are they missing and where are they and all these other kind of complicated statistics that, you know, I couldn't find anything describing her role in that. You know what I mean? But yeah. I assume that was a really large part of her job. Um, but unfortunately, there weren't more kind of like one-on-one interviews with her because that's something I would have mm. wanted to learn more about. Yeah, sometimes uh, it's tough to find information. It's like, but you, yeah, I think yeah. you know more individuals that lived more recently. You know, just there's more stuff on the internet, but yeah, and I think if, that I've I feel like we've had this trouble before when we find a scientist who worked for the government. A lot of the times, their individual contributions just are not clear at all. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you're not publishing mm-hmm. like one paper. You're publishing like a hundred page report. <laughs> it's just with like 20 other people. Um, yeah. No, yes. and I mean, like, it's a collaborative effort. And y- yes, yeah. I'm sure there are also contributions that she made on her own, distinct. But yeah, th- that all gets kind of muddled, especially in government stuff. Right. But I just imagine like, if she was the first Native American ever to be hired by the Census Bureau, like a lot yeah. of these changes had to kind of be spurred by her, or at least like, you know, she must have had a large impact, like with mm-hmm. just with that background. I don't know. Um, no, I'm, I I agree. Yeah. Uh, Okay, she was also part of a task force that spent years investigating how to survey race. And I found multiple studies that this group published, which investigated how, uh, all of which investigated how outcomes of a survey can be a very, can be very different based on how race is surveyed. So for example, 
One of their, and this is where I was like, oh my God, this is so complicated. Um, one of their studies found that when the, this is a quote, when the race and Hispanic origin questions are combined, a high percentage of responses included both Hispanic origin and one of the four major race categories currently allowed. So they're looking at like different combinations of people identifying their ethnicity, their heritage, their race, and how people respond differently when the categories are different <laughs> or more specific or less specific. Um, but my other example of just like the kind of really specific things they just they had to study before they could even change the census were things like uh, quote substituting native Hawaiian for Hawaiian for Hawaiian and listing this category immediately after the American Indian and Alaska Native category increased reporting as Hawaiian. Huh. Yeah, so it's just, it's complicated, like, what people identify as and how to survey that. It's just extremely, yeah. and it must change all the time, too. Um, Which I guess emphasizes the importance of working with those communities to figure out, like, how they're going to respond to certain questions right. and what questions actually, like, resonate with them. Yeah, and those, so those are just two like very specific quotes, but they investigated like all kinds of different combinations like that of different categories and how people categorize themselves. And uh, one impact of this research was that the 2000 census was the first census ever where individuals could report being multiple races. Mm. Like check off, okay. I'm this nice. and that, which is yeah. like... Yeah, that's just so kind of mind-blowing in a sense. But even still, I think at, in 2000, I was looking at the categories and it still seemed so limited. Um, mm -hmm. And there was kind of a lot of like write-in options too. Like if you check this box, you know, write in your tribe name. Or if you check that box, write in exactly which country of origin or, you know, it's... They're trying to get more specific while, but they have to make categories that I guess, I don't know, like, I guess they need these categories to say, like, I, I don't know. Yeah, anyway, it's very interesting and difficult work, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, because, okay. like, you know, you could have everybody write, you can't have people just write in whatever, because you have to be able to, like, tally that. You have three three hundred thirty million people that you have to like tally and categorize right. to figure out funding, and so like there's just no way you can only give them so many op. Like they could give them more options, but like at some point you run into limitations with that. Yeah, and you want to make sure that like white and Caucasian are kind of counted the same, right? Like mm -hmm. there's different words for the same thing, but. For some people, those words mean very different things. And so understanding all those nuances mm -hmm. is important, too. Yeah. Um, okay. So as much as I couldn't find, like, a lot of specific 
day-to-day um or specific like big accomplishments of hers um i found this paragraph from a book i think it's called 101 mathematicians but it'll be in the bio and she basically and she was like kind of narrating this and she said the following which summarizes her job at the census bureau and um so she says quote what types of projects do i do We are working on the research and design of the race question we will use for the 2000 census. I am also involved in planning a test census for an American Indian reservation, research on administrative records for tribal governments, strategic planning, writing speeches for the director and other executive staff, conducting workshops and presentations, preparing congressional testimony, working with census advisory committees, designing census reports and computer tape files, and developing outreach and promotion programs. I am the census liaison with American Indians and Alaska Natives and chairperson of the American Indian and Alaska Native Task Force. And I have participated in international conferences in Canada, Denmark, and Austria. And that's the end of the quote. So that's a, a lot. It doesn't need to be longer. <laughs> I know. Basically, she just did like everything. You know, yeah. she's doing statistics, writing reports, being the community liaison. Um, pretty incredible. So for all of her work with the census, um, in 1987, she received the U.S. Department of Commerce Bronze Medal Award for Superior Federal Service. And in 1994, she received the U.S. Department of Commerce Silver Medal Award for Meritus Service in, oh, yeah, in 1994. And sometime after the 2000 census, She changed jobs and began working as the principal statistician and division chief for the Department of Health and Human Services, Indian Health Service. And, um, yeah, I don't know why she changed jobs. Maybe she just wanted a new research topic. I have no idea. (laughs) But she started doing stats, statistics for the Department of Health and Human Services, um, and I found a couple of papers from, uh, from that time, like one of them summarized data on asthma ho- hospitalizations in the Native American community. And another investigated pertussis-associated hospitalizations in the Native American community and so on. Um, so kind of just doing data science before it really got cool I, is sort of what it seemed like to me, like taking all these records and compiling all this data and putting it into nice graphs, basically. (laughs) So despite her uh, disability, Edna loved to travel and explore the world. And she did get to do more traveling, um, you know, throughout her life, which is great. And she always hoped to be able to live on a reservation again. And so when she retired in 2011, she moved back home to Idaho to live on the Nez Perce Reservation. And she died a few years later in 2014, survived by many close family members, including siblings, cousins, nieces, nephews, and, and more. And so that is the story of Edna Paisano. 
That was so nice. Like, yeah, I, I do think it's so important that you can have such strong contributions, even if you're working as a team, you know, like you're working as a team, but like your presence in that team or in that center based on your experiences and your like expertise is going to strongly change what that group's able to do. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I do think it's hard to measure one person's influence, but I do, Mm -hmm. it seems to me given sort of the articles that were written about her, that she did have a large influence, even if the specific examples aren't, you know, in those articles or whatever. Like, people knew her and knew about her and knew that she really helped to improve the census um, while she was there. So, yeah. I wonder if she, uh, part of going to the health, wait, National Health NHS? Is that what it is? Um, Health and Human Services? Yeah, yeah. Was that also in D.C. or was that in, like, on a reservation? Like, did you that, know, was that part of the reason? Because she wanted to get back to living. I don't know, but I think it might have actually been in D.C. still. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, Sometimes you gotta just but, yeah. switch it up. Yeah, you know, you get tired of kind of asking the same questions and... Every 10 years. Yeah, right? It can be fun to just have a new research topic. I feel like especially if you're a data Mm -hmm. scientist and you just, at some point, if you keep looking at the same data, like, I don't know, don't you get almost like bored? I would get bored, honestly, and like not lose some creativity if I didn't Mm -hmm. have a new kind of data set here and there or something like that. New questions to ask. I don't know. I agree. Well, that was wonderful. And I really didn't know where you were going when you first mentioned um, (laughs) the census. census, I liked it a lot. I hope there wasn't too much info on the census, but there wasn't enough like whole biographical info that I had to look up like all this stuff about how the census changed during the time she was there and then be like, well, some of this at least is attributed to her Otherwise, at least she was there while these changes happened. (laughs) No, I think it was good. I mean, the census is so important and also has so many issues with, like, underrepresenting marginalized communities and therefore not funding communities equally. And so I think it's... He's good. Um, Yeah. Should we work? My thing is super, super short. Yeah, death. All right. This is the Women Who Works section where we give shout-outs to badass ladies making history today. And um, today I'm giving a shout-out to, as always, Layla McNeil and um, Anna Rezer, who uh, wrote a book about historical women in science called Forces of Nature, The Women Who Changed Science. And they... From my understanding of this book, they do a a really good job of not just focusing on those rock stars that were like, you know, Marie Curie. They talk about 
you know, Murray Curie and Rosalind Franklin, but really talk about the instrumental women who have always been in science, maybe haven't gotten as rec- mm-hmm. much recognition. Maybe we don't know their specific roles um, in science as in as much detail. Maybe they right. weren't like, you know, rogue, rogue lone scientists <laughs> that we can like attribute yeah. like a whole section of science to. But um, I think they're just emphasizing the point that, like, women have always been in science. Uh, We've always been making contributions, even when we're not uh, put into the limelight. Yeah, even when we don't get two (laughs) Nobel Prizes, you know? Yeah, you don't have to have two Nobel Prizes to be worthy of discussion (laughs) and be important historically to uh, your scientific contribution. So just want to give a shout out. To both of those awesome ladies. Um, so check out that book, Forces of Nature. And also you can check out their, um, what is it? It's their magazine, which is Lady Science. Mm-hmm. Ma- uh, yeah. yeah, Lady Science Mag. Um, which talks about their, their podcast, Lady Science Pod. You know, just, you know, go to them. Yeah. Get out of here I actually- and go over there. You know what? I pre-ordered that book and I just got it in nice. the mail today, I think. So I'm very <gasps> excited to crack it open. And I'm glad you shouted That's it out. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's no, cool. I think it's I th- I think it comes out tomorrow, but you're just a lucky lucky lady. Well, Either I pre-ordered something I forgot about or that's what came in the mail. I haven't opened the package yet, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Yeah, I mean, I could have gotten here early and just like is, nor- you know, on official sale tomorrow. Well, that's uh, awesome. So, yeah, I really suggest you go. They, I mean, I've mostly read Layla McNeil's stuff. Um, right. But, and I know she's a really great writer. Um, and I'm sure Anna Rezer is too. So I'm sure it's a great book. Yeah, I'm excited we gotta. To we can't keep sh- just shouting out Layla McNeil, <laughs> or or can we? Maybe we will. We should always. Yeah, at the why end not? of every pod. Why not? I, I mean, the uh, all right. Anyway, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, my dog's trying to break in. Um, oh yeah, to yeah. My recording nook. So thank you, thank you everybody for listening to our episode. Um, thanks to Artichoke for our awesome theme music and to Caitlin Friesen for our awesome art. And as always, you can go stimulate yourself. Stimulate yourself. yourself. <laughs> Bye. Bye.